Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about cervical cancer. And you can find written notes on this topic at zerotofinals.com slash cervical or in the cancer section of the Zero to Finals Obstetrics and Gynecology book. So let's get straight into it. Cancer of the cervix tends to affect younger women peaking in the reproductive years. 80% of cervical cancers are squamous cell carcinoma. Adenocarcinoma is the next most common type. Very rarely there are other types such as small cell cancer. Cervical cancer is strongly associated with the human papillomavirus or HPV. Children aged 12 to 13 years are vaccinated against certain strains of HPV to reduce the risk of cervical cancer. Cervical screening with smear tests is used to screen for precancerous and cancerous changes to the cells of the cervix. Early detection of precancerous changes enables prompt treatment to prevent the development of cervical cancer. Let's talk in more detail about the human papilloma virus. The most common cause of cervical cancer is infection with human papilloma virus or HPV. HPV is also associated with anal, vulval, vaginal, penile, mouth and throat cancers. HPV is primarily a sexually transmitted infection. There are over a hundred strains of HPV. The important ones to remember are type 16 and 18, as these are responsible for around 70% of cervical cancers and also the strains targeted with the HPV vaccine. There's no treatment for infection with HPV. Most cases will resolve spontaneously within two years, while some cases will persist. P53 and PRB are tumour suppressor genes. They have a role in suppressing cancer from developing. HPV produces two proteins, E6 and E7, that inhibit these tumour suppressor genes. The E6 protein inhibits P53 and the E7 protein inhibits PRB. Therefore, and the important thing to remember, is that HPV promotes the development of cancer by inhibiting tumour suppressor genes. Let's talk about the risk factors. There are three ways that you can think of the risks of cervical cancer and these are in terms of increasing the risk of catching HPV, later detection of precancerous and cancerous changes, essentially non-engagement with screening, and other risk factors. The things that would increase the risk of catching HPV are early sexual activity, an increased number of sexual partners, sexual partners who have had more sexual partners themselves, and not using condoms. Non-engagement with cervical screening is a significant risk factor. Many cases of cervical cancer are preventable with early detection and treatment of precancerous changes. Other risk factors are smoking, HIV, and patients with HIV are offered yearly smear tests, use of the combined contraceptive pill for more than five years, increased number of full-term pregnancies, family history, and exposure to diethylstilbestrol during fetal development, 
and this was previously used to prevent miscarriages before 1971. A Tom tip for you, when you're performing a history in your exams and considering cancer, always ask about risk factors to show your examiners that you're assessing a patient's risk of having cancer. Ask about attendance to smears, the number of sexual partners, family history and smoking. Let's talk about the presentation. Cervical cancer may be detected during cervical smears in otherwise asymptomatic women. The presenting symptoms that should make you consider cervical cancer as a differential are abnormal vaginal bleeding, whether it's intermenstrual, postcoital, or postmenopausal bleeding, abnormal vaginal discharge, pelvic pain, and dyspareunia, which is pain or discomfort during sex. These symptoms are non specific and in most cases they're not caused by cervical cancer. The next step is to examine the cervix with a speculum and during examination swabs can be taken to exclude infection. Where there is an abnormal appearance to the cervix that suggests cancer, an urgent cancer referral for colposcopy should be made to assess further. Appearances that may suggest cervical cancer are ulceration, inflammation, bleeding and a visible tumour. The NICE clinical knowledge summaries updated in 2017 recommend against unscheduled cervical screening with a smear test. They also advise against using the results of cervical screening to exclude cervical cancer where it's suspected for another reason, even if the smear test is normal. Let's talk about cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. Cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or CIN, is a grading system for the level of dysplasia or premalignant changes in the cells of the cervix. CIN is diagnosed at colposcopy, not with cervical screening. The grades are CIN1, which represents mild dysplasia affecting one-third the thickness of the epithelial layer, likely to return to normal without any treatment. CIN2, which represents moderate dysplasia affecting two-thirds the thickness of the epithelial layer and likely to progress to cancer if it's untreated. And CIN3, which represents severe dysplasia, very likely to progress to cancer if untreated. CIN3 is sometimes called cervical carcinoma in situ. A Tom tip for you, try not to get mixed up between dysplasia which is found during colposcopy, and dyscariosis, which is seen on smear results. Next, let's talk about screening. Screening for cervical cancer aims to pick up precancerous changes in the epithelial cells of the cervix. It involves a cervical smear test performed by a qualified person, often a practice nurse. The test consists of a speculum examination and collection of cells from the cervix using a small brush. The cells are deposited from the brush into a preservation fluid. This fluid is transported to the lab where the cells are examined under a microscope for precancerous changes or dyscariosis. This way of transporting cells in the liquid is called liquid-based cytology. The samples are initially tested for high-risk HPV before the cells are examined. 
If the HPV test is negative, meaning the person does not have HPV infection, the cells are not examined, the smear test is considered negative and the woman is returned to the routine screening program. The cervical screening program involves performing a smear test for women and also importantly for transgender men if they still have a cervix. Every three years aged 25 to 49 and every five years aged 50 to 64. There are some notable exceptions to this program. Women with HIV are screened annually. Women over 65 may request a smear if they've not had one since aged 50. Women with previous cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or CIN, may require additional smear tests, for example a test of cure after treatment for the CIN. Certain groups of immunocompromised women may have additional screening, for example women on dialysis, those taking cytotoxic drugs, and those undergoing an organ transplant. And pregnant women who are due a routine smear test should wait until 12 weeks postpartum before having a smear. There are a number of possible results from the cytology of a smear test. These may be inadequate, normal, borderline changes, low-grade dyscariosis, high-grade dyscariosis in brackets moderate, high-grade dyscariosis in brackets severe, possible invasive squamous cell carcinoma and possible glandular neoplasia. Infections such as bacterial vaginosis, candidiasis and trichomoniasis may be identified and reported on a smear result. Actinomyces-like organisms are often discovered in women with an intrauterine device or a coil. These do not require treatment unless they're symptomatic. Where patients are symptomatic, for example with pelvic pain or abnormal bleeding, removal of the intrauterine device may be considered. This is a brief summary of the management of smear results based on the Public Health England guidelines from 2019. If it's reported as an inadequate sample, a repeat smear should be performed after at least three months. If the results come back as HPV negative, they should continue the routine screening. If the result comes back HPV positive, with normal cytology or normal cells, then there should be a repeat HPV test after 12 months. And if the result comes back as HPV positive with abnormal cytology or abnormal cells, then they need a referral for colposcopy. Let's talk about colposcopy. A specialist will perform colposcopy. It involves inserting a speculum and using equipment called a colposcope to magnify the cervix. This allows the epithelial lining of the cervix to be examined in detail. During colposcopy, stains such as acetic acid and iodine solution can be used to differentiate abnormal areas of the cervix. Acetic acid causes abnormal cells to appear white. This appearance is described as acetowhite. This occurs in cells with an increased nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio where the nucleus of the cell is larger and this happens in cervical intraepithelial neoplasia and cervical cancer cells. 
Schiller's iodine test involves using an iodine solution to stain the cells of the cervix. Iodine will stain healthy cells a brown colour, whereas abnormal areas will not stain. A punch biopsy, or a large loop excision of the transformational zone, can be performed during the colposcopy procedure in order to get a sample of the tissue. Let's talk in more detail about large loop excision of the transformation zone, or LLETZ. This is also called a loop biopsy. It can be performed with a local anaesthetic during a colposcopy procedure. It involves a loop of wire with an electrical current or diathermy to remove abnormal epithelial tissue on the cervix. The electrical current cauterizes the tissue and stops any bleeding. Bleeding and abnormal discharge can occur for a few weeks after a large loop excision of the transformational zone procedure. Whether there's bleeding and abnormal discharge will vary between women. Intercourse and tampon use should be avoided after the procedure to reduce the risk of infection. Depending on the depth of the tissue that's been removed from the cervix, the procedure may increase the risk of preterm labour in future pregnancies. Let's talk about cone biopsy. A cone biopsy is a treatment for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, or CIN, and very early stage cervical cancer. A cone biopsy involves a general anaesthetic. The surgeon removes a cone-shaped piece of the cervix using a scalpel. This sample is sent to the lab for histology testing to assess for malignancy. The main risks of a cone biopsy are pain, bleeding, infection, scar formation with stenosis of the cervix, and increased risk of miscarriage and preterm labour in future pregnancies. Next let's talk about staging. The International Federation of Gynaecology and Obstetrics, or FIGO, staging system is used to stage cervical cancer. Stage 1 is confined to the cervix. Stage 2 invades the uterus or the upper two-thirds of the vagina. Stage 3 invades the pelvic wall or the lower one-third of the vagina and stage 4 invades the bladder, rectum, or beyond the pelvis. Next let's talk about management. Management of cervical cancer depends on the stage and the individual situation. For example, for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia and early stage 1a cervical cancer, treatment is with either a large loop excision of the transformation zone, or loop biopsy, or a cone biopsy. For stage 1b to stage 2a cervical cancer, treatment is with a radical hysterectomy and removal of local lymph nodes with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. For stage 2b to stage 4a cervical cancer, treatment is with chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And for stage 4b cervical cancer, management may involve a combination of surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy and palliative care. The five-year survival drops significantly with more advanced cervical cancer, from around 98% with stage 1A to around 15% with stage 4. Early detection makes a significant difference, 
which is one reason the screening program is so valuable and important. Pelvic exenteration is an operation that may be used in advanced cervical cancer. This involves removing most or all of the pelvic organs including the vagina, cervix, uterus, fallopian tubes, ovaries, bladder and rectum. This is a vast operation and it has significant implications on quality of life. Bevacizumab, which has a brand name of Avastin, is a monoclonal antibody that may be used in combination with other chemotherapies in the treatment of metastatic or recurrent cervical cancer. It's also used for several other types of cancer. It targets vascular endothelial growth factor A, or VEGFA, which is responsible for the development of new blood vessels. Therefore, it reduces the development of new blood vessels. You may also come across this medication in ophthalmology as a treatment for wet age-related macular degeneration, where it's injected directly into the patient's eye to stop new blood vessels from forming on the retina. Finally, let's talk about the human papillomavirus or HPV vaccine. The HPV vaccine is ideally given to girls and boys before they become sexually active. It needs to be given before they become sexually active because the intention is to prevent them from contracting and spreading HPV once they become sexually active. The current NHS HPV vaccine is called Gardasil, which protects against strains 6, 11, 16 and 18. Strains 6 and 11 cause genital warts and strains 16 and 18 cause cervical cancer. A final Tom tip for you. A common exam task is to counsel parents about their child receiving the HPV vaccine. They're upset because they believe this implies their daughter or son is sexually promiscuous. Focus on the fact that it needs to be given before they become sexually active and that it protects them against cervical cancer and genital warts. HPV is very common and infection is the number one risk factor for cervical cancer. So thanks for listening to this episode on cervical cancer. As always, a big thank you to Harry Watchman for perfectly editing this podcast. And I hope you join us for the next episode where we'll talk about endometrial cancer.